Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to give you a little reminder that it is British Podcast Awards season and it would be really amazing if you could vote for Real Life Ghost Stories in the Listener's Choice Award. You just need to go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. You just scroll down on that page, type in Real Life Ghost Stories into the search bar and then click on Real Life Ghost Stories. You will then be sent a confirmation email and in order to make your vote count, you need to click the button in the email and that is it. It literally only takes a minute. It is super quick. I am under absolutely no illusions that Real Life Ghost Stories will win, but if I get shortlisted, it's just great advertising for the podcast and that's it. Also, you can only vote for Real Life Ghost Stories once, but you can vote for as many podcasts as you like. So if you have a podcast that you love, please be sure that you sling them a vote too, especially if they're an indie podcast. The link to vote will be in the description of this episode. It's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Aaron Whitehead, Lucy, Stephanie King, Eveen Cullen, Maggie, Phil Harding, Ruth Verkus, Moira Kennedy, Podgirl from the Black Lagoon, Jessie, Iron Forests, Little Gold Fox, Chloe Chin Sad. Lorraine Brooks, Rebecca Walbridge, Haley Marin, Lana Hamilton, Wildflower, Beverly Thornton, and Rebecca Bayuk. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Others. The Others was released in 2001. It has 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. A woman who lives in her darkened old family house with her two photosensitive children becomes convinced that the home is haunted. Before we go any further with this film review, I need to let you know that there will be no spoilers in this film review and therefore it's going to be necessary to keep this film review short and sweet because it's hard to talk about without talking about what actually happens, if that makes sense. I watched this film years and years ago. It totally messed me up years and years ago and I thought that re-watching it, I'd be really disappointed. You know when you come back to a film that you haven't seen for years and you think, oh... This actually isn't really scary at all. This film didn't disappoint. Really didn't disappoint. So let's get into the likes and the dislikes and we'll start with the likes. This film starts with Nicole Kidman waking up screaming, like literally opening her eyeballs first thing in the morning and screaming the house down. I love that energy. I feel like that's that's what I do at the moment. I just wake up screaming. It was totally meme worthy. Why is that not a meme? I loved it. And you know, I really had forgotten how genuinely sad the storyline is. I think because the, the the film itself was so shocking at the time. If you've seen the film, you will know the reasons why. I actually forgot a huge amount of the storyline. 
And it's really sad. Her neurosis is really sad. The fact that she is living in this house. Her husband went to war and just never came back. All she's tried to do is protect her children. Her kids are photosensitive, which means that they can't have any light on their bodies or else they break out in blisters and it might kill them. The house is completely silent all the time because she suffers from terrible migraines and noise sets off the migraines. It's all just really bleak and therefore completely perfect for a ghost story. And I didn't realise how much of this story is centred around whether or not the ghost story is real or whether or not it is the children playing up on the mother or whether or not the ghost story is a representation of the mother's feelings about losing her husband. I just didn't realise how much of the story was wrapped up in that. There are two children in this story, a little boy and a little girl, and they are, sorry, they're creepy as shit. They're creepy as shit. The little girl, Anne, she's a little bitch. She is mean to her brother. She's really sassy with her mother. And when I say little bitch, I mean it in the best possible way. What a character. There was times when I thought, oh... Oh, I'd love to throw you out window. I'd love to punt you over the nearest hedge. And there's other times where I was like, good on you, Anne. You asked the hard-hitting questions. There's a huge amount of talk of damnation in this film. Like the mother is obsessed with the Bible and damnation and God creating the world and limbo and children going to limbo and all that kind of stuff. And Anne constantly questions it. She's constantly questioning God. She's questioning religion. She's fighting with her ma about religion. And I just hadn't remembered all of that storyline. And it was really good. It's good to have a child actor in a movie or a, a child's character in a movie who's just really sassy. And she, she obviously spends a lot of her time winding her brother up. And he gets really upset about it. And I'm the youngest of four kids. So I can tell you I remember the bullying that I received. Anybody who is a younger sibling will know the bullying and it is portrayed very well I think in this film. And here's the thing, this film is rated at 12 and because I'd seen it so long ago I really didn't think it was going to be scary but I was freaked out watching it, genuinely freaked out. I was watching it in my sitting room in the dark, I had the lights off, I was watching it and I was kind of expecting to be like entertained and just a bit like oh god yeah I remember that bit I can't believe that used to really scare me when I was a kid let me tell you there is a bit when the kids are in bed and Anne wakes up and is talking to something in the room scared the shit out of me I was really freaked out watching it really freaked out and I, I was surprised at how freaked out I was somebody messaged me as well on Instagram I, I can't remember your username I'm sorry but they messaged me about the scene that I posted the picture of on Instagram, the scene itself is in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler, but it's where there is uh, what you think is Anne, the little girl in her communion dress, in her white dress with a veil over her face. That's not a spoiler. As I said, it's in the trailer. I remember that being hideous. And this person who messaged me on Instagram about that same scene also remembered it being like this really deformed, hideous woman's face. It really isn't. Really isn't. I don't know where how we have that shared memory. It's like one of those Mandela effect things. And I'm going to move swiftly on to the dislikes. And I've only written down two things that I disliked about this film. The first is that the kids are well annoying. It's so hypocritical of me to be like, I like Anne's sassiness. And then to also be like, well, she's really annoying. 
But there were points where I was like, oh, I just wanted the kids to not be in the scene. <laughs> Even though they were pivotal to the scene. The other thing that I have as a dislike is uh, Christopher Eccleston. Purely because I just dislike him as an actor. There's no other reason for that. His character in this is fine. He plays a pretty bland character. Uh, but yeah, just just don't like him. So that's a very personal thing and not very fair to dislike about the film. In all, I have to say I really enjoyed the rewatch. I was genuinely freaked out, which I wasn't expecting. I was watching the whole way through to pick up little clues that I didn't see the first time around. And I really enjoyed it. Like, really, really enjoy it. There's very little, I think, to dislike about this film. So I'm going to have to give it five stars. And Nicole Kidman has great eyebrows. And you've got creepy servants. What more do you want from a horror film, really? Go and rewatch it if you haven't rewatched it recently. Which brings us to our story this week. And our story this week is not about great eyebrows in a haunted house. Our story this week was completely inspired by the wonderful Mysteries of the Unexplained podcast, which is no longer releasing episode, but you can still find all their episodes on your podcast player. The wonderful Annie and Will covered this story and I hadn't heard it before. And I listened to their episode whenever they released it. And I thought, wow, how do I not know this story? It's a bit of a weird one. It's a bit steeped in folklore, so it's going to be a bit of a different episode today. So let's get into it. When I was a child, Irish stories of myth and legend were commonplace in the classroom. We learned stories about the Red Branch Knights and Satanta and the Brown Bull of Cooley. We learned them in history lessons and we learned them like they were fact. Magical stories of bravery and love, stories that were designed to teach us to stand up to adversity and to refuse to accept authority for authority's sake. One of the stories that we read, that we devoured, was the story of Ushin and Neve, and the island of Tir The Fianna were a band of warriors that were the most skilled and feared warriors in the land. To become a warrior in the Fianna, you had to pass a number of tests and they roamed the land protecting people wherever they went, hunting for food and establishing peace in Ireland. On one of those hunting expeditions, the Fianna stopped to rest by the coast when a beautiful white horse approached them. On top of the horse was the most beautiful woman any of them had ever seen. She rode close to the Fianna and declared, I am Neve of the Golden Hair. And my father is King of Tirnanog. I have heard of a great warrior named Ushin. I have come to find him and ask him to return with me to the land of the young. Ushin accepted Neve's invitation, having immediately fallen in love with this beautiful princess from another land. And waving goodbye to the Fianna, he jumped on the snow-white horse with Neve. Over the land and sea the horse ran, reaching the magical shores of Tirnanog. The king and queen welcomed Ushin and held a great feast in his honour. It was a magical land, where by day Ushin hunted and feasted, and at night he sat and told ancient stories of Fionn, the Fianna and Ireland. Ushin lived in Tirnanog for 300 years, but soon the longing to return to the Emerald Isle began to overcome his love for the land of eternal youth. Neve did not want him to go, but she agreed, warning him that if he were to set foot on the soil of Ireland, he would never be able to return to Tiernanog. 
Ushin reached Ireland to find that everything had changed. To him, it felt as though three short years had passed instead of 300. There was no longer the sight of his father or the Fianna hunting through the hills. And the castle that he once called home had now begun to crumble. As he passed through Glen Small, the Valley of the Thrushes, he saw a group of men trying to move a large stone. Ushin wanted to help, leaning down in his saddle to do so and lift the stone. But the saddle strap broke and he fell to the ground. Immediately, the magical white and mighty horse galloped away and all of a sudden, the great hero Ushin became a withered old man, aging before the men's very eyes. Legend has it that the men were shocked and immediately brought Ushin to St. Patrick. St. Patrick tried to comfort Ushin, but when Ushin learned that the Fianna and his father were long since dead, his heart filled with sadness and despair. Ushin spoke of the days of his life alongside the Fianna and the many great deeds of his father, Fionn McCool, when they hunted, dined and listened to great stories together. He spoke of his time in Tirna Nog and his beautiful golden-haired wife, Neve. Ushin died soon after, never returning to Tirnanog, but the wonderful stories of Neve and Ushin have lived on throughout the ages, and the legend of the land of eternal youth remains. To us, these stories were more than just legends and folk tales. They were an indication that there was something more to our world, that our land still held magical secrets. But did I really believe that there was a magical island where no one grew old? No. But is a magical island possible? Apparently yes. And no, I'm not talking about Atlantis. It was a hot July morning in 1878. And the coastal town of Ballycotton in County Cork awoke to something they had never seen before. It was early in the morning when the people began to gather at the small dock looking out to sea. People were murmuring, pointing and shaking their heads as they stared out into the misty beyond. An island had appeared in the sea. An island that had never been seen before. It wasn't just a hazy, misty outline in the distance. It wasn't the vague suggestion of a crop of land. They could see the meandering coastline, and they could see the dark shapes of the trees and the vast woodlands. They could see rolling green fields and deep valleys. Before them was an island that had simply never existed before. These were seafaring people. They knew the sea. They knew the islands. They fished the waters, and this island had not been here yesterday. A quick meeting between those who had assembled was called and the fishermen decided that there was only one thing for it. They would sail out in a fleet of boats and try to land on the mysterious island. But as they rowed out towards the island, it winked out of existence. One moment it was there, and then in an instant, it was gone. So what was this mysterious island that appeared? Was it real or was it some sort of strange optical illusion? The late 1800s was not the first time that the island of High Brazil had been seen or explored. High Brazil was first recorded on a map in 1325 
by Genoese cartographer Delarto. And I need to be really clear here that it was recorded on official maps. I don't mean that it was recorded in a sketch by a local fisherman. The odd thing about this island is that it was steeped in a strong oral tradition. People who lived on the southwest coast of Ireland told stories of the floating island. It was enveloped by a fog bank and would appear once every seven years and then seemingly sink below the waves. It was seen in Catalan maps of 1480 and even St. Brendan alleged to have found a mysterious island when he returned from his great voyages. It was said to be a place of great mystery and legend and a place where riches were to be found. High Brazil was then seen in maps continually all the way until the late 1800s. One of the most interesting aspects of the island in cartography is that it was generally printed as a perfect circle with a body of water splitting it down the middle. The word of a mysterious island had spread across Ireland to England and people became interested in finding the island. If they found it, there was a possibility that there may be resources of treasure on the island that could be kept or sold. John J. Jr. was a sailor in Bristol in the southwest of England who decided that it was about time for an expedition to find High Brazil once and for all and to obviously see what could be gained from the island. He set sail from Bristol in 1480 with the intention of sailing around the south coast of Ireland and around to High Brazil on the southwest coast. They spent two months sailing the seas around the southwest of Ireland, hoping to stumble upon the island. But nothing. There was no bank of fog, no woods and valleys that rose from the ocean. Nothing. Dejected, they returned to Bristol, but the idea of discovering this island had taken hold of the sailors in Bristol. They had heard stories for years of this mysterious island, and the Irish people claimed it was full of treasure, that it was a magical land where a man could make his fortune. The Irish people had for centuries talked of High Brazil as a place where an advanced civilization lived. This civilization were immortal, and they knew all the secrets of the universe. The Irish people believed that these people were wizards and had magical powers. If you could reach the island, you could return home with riches beyond your wildest dreams. The men from Bristol were not content to accept that the island couldn't be found. Instead, the sailors regrouped and set about a new expedition. In 1481, two ships, the Trinity and the George, were loaded up and set sail to yet again round the south coast of Ireland and find High Brazil once and for all. They were unsuccessful. In amongst all of the distinct lack of successes of these expeditions from Bristol, there seems to have been at least one group of sailors who saw something, or maybe even found the island itself. In 1497, a Spanish diplomat named Pedro de Ayala reported to the Catholic monarchs of Spain that the renowned explorer John Cabot had spoken about the men from Bristol who discovered Brazil. He also said that he had seen the land these men had discovered and the diplomat went on to write that for the last seven years the people of Bristol have equipped two, three and four caravels to go in search of the island of Brazil and the seven cities according to the fancy of this Genoese. 
the king made up his mind to send thither because last year sure proof was brought that they had found the land. So there are a couple of things that could be happening here. Perhaps the men from Bristol really did discover the island. Perhaps they didn't, but couldn't face the embarrassment of going back to Bristol after yet another failed expedition. Or perhaps there is no weight to these stories at all. Perhaps even the tiniest hope of gold and riches was too much of a lure and they just needed to believe that the island was real. At this point, I imagine you're thinking that this story is just some old folklore that has been passed down and there's no possibility of it being true. But there is more to this than meets the eye. We have to wade through some of the madder accounts in order to get to the more modern accounts of High Brazil, and I promise you they're worth it. In 1674, Scottish captain John Nesbitt was making a voyage from the west of Ireland to France. It was a journey that he had done countless times, and he was familiar with the seas and the coastline. There is a strange silence that falls when you're on a boat, and it sails through thick fog. It's a silence that is heavy and thick, and the only sound that can be heard is the slap of the waves against the wood of the ship. The ship hid a dense fog, and it was unusual in this part of the sea for this time of year. The captain narrowed his eyes and squinted, willing his vision to penetrate the thick fog. It seemed to have descended over the ship out of nowhere, like someone had just lowered a blanket around them. He could see the crew were wary, not quite rattled, but hyper alert. Something was off. Then, as suddenly as the fog had descended, it lifted, and they were perilously close to a rocky shore. They shouldn't be this near land. The route had been straightforward, and they hadn't blown off course. The captain checked his maps and his instruments, and checked them again, and got his shipmates to check. It couldn't be. There was no way. But they checked and rechecked, and there it was. The island was real. This was it. Excitedly, they dropped anchor, and the men scrambled off the ship. In all... Captain Nesbitt claims that they spent a day exploring the island. He claimed that the island was green and lush and beautiful, and that on it were huge black rabbits that gambled around the valleys. In the centre of the island, they came across a stone castle where a lone man resided. Captain Nesbitt referred to him as a wizard, and it was claimed that this wizard gave the men gold and silver by the bucket load. The ship docked in France laden down with riches and full to the brim of stories of High Brazil. Which, of course, prompted more expeditions. According to an article on the website Mysterious Universe written by Brent Swanser, other people were also said to have been successful in locating High Brazil. In 1684, an Irish historian by the name of Rory O'Flaherty claimed to have met a man named Merck O'Lee, who told him that he had been abducted and taken to High Brazil against his will for two days. During his imprisonment, he reported that he had fallen ill and lost consciousness, only to find that he was inexplicably back in Ireland when he woke up again. The story is odd, but it got even weirder when an Irish-language scholar named John O'Donovan claimed a different set of events in relation to O'Lee's story in 1839. 
O'Donovan said that Oli had actually apparently been a sailor who had landed on the island and been confronted by an old man who had emerged from the wilderness to warn them that the island was enchanted. As Oli was leaving, the old hermit had given him a book which he was told should not be opened for seven years. Oli dutifully waited the seven years and when he opened the book, he found it to be filled with a vast amount of miraculous arcane knowledge, namely pertaining to illnesses and medicine. Armed with his new knowledge, Oli then allegedly went on to become a prominent doctor with a knack for treating and curing a wide variety of serious illnesses. The two versions of this story are so divergent that it is hard to know what to make of them. Perhaps Oli really did find the island and really had been given such a book with the story of his capture a ruse to cover up the real events and thus keep his prized possession a secret. In 1872, Irish folklorist and author T.J. Westrop was travelling with a man by the name of Robert O'Flaherty, as well as his own mother and several other companions and family members, when they all witnessed the island appear out of nowhere in front of them, only to once again vanish before their eyes. Westrop had seen the island several times before, and on this particular expedition, he brought his friends along and his family in order to witness it for themselves and verify its existence. High Brazil was officially removed from maps in the 1870s, but the sightings did not cease after this. In fact, one of the most recent sightings that we know of was in 2012, when the island was allegedly seen by a pilot. Nigel Gosser was piloting a routine flight towards the west of Ireland on the afternoon of February the 18th, 2012. Flying conditions were ideal and the sky was clear and the sea below sparkled. Much like Captain Nesbitt before him, Gosser suddenly noticed that a dense, thick fog appeared to be rolling over the ocean at great speed. He continued his flight path over the fog and looked down to see that his compass had begun to spin and move wildly. Baffled, he looked down at the fog below him and he could see green hills and valleys through the clear spots in the fog. Lush trees and vegetation spread out below him but there should have been no land below him at all. He flew on, and all of a sudden the fog lifted and everything was back to normal again. There was no fog and no land. He had done this flight numerous times and knew there was no island there. He believed that what he witnessed was the legendary island of High Brazil. And... There is one more bizarre incident linked to High Brazil that I was completely unaware of, and to understand it, we need to go back to episode 131, the Rendlesham Forest Incident. I won't be retelling the whole story here, but let's do a brief recap so that we're all on the same page. The Rendlesham Forest Incident took place in December 1980 over a series of at least two nights. On December the 26th, 1980, military personnel at the twin bases of RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk saw a strange light in Rendlesham Forest, which lies between the two bases. Three men were sent out to investigate, and two of them encountered a small triangular-shaped craft. One man, Jim Penniston, got close enough to touch the side of the object. He and another of the airmen present, John Burroughs, made sketches of the craft for witness statements. 
Two nights later, Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt and his team then encountered the UFO. He said later, Here I am, a senior official who routinely denies this sort of thing and diligently works to debunk them, and I'm involved in the middle of something I can't explain. Despite an MOD investigation, the Rendlesham Forest incident remains unexplained. The key to our story is the testimony of Jim Penniston. He claimed that he got close enough to touch the UFO. He felt his way around the surface of it, and when he touched the symbols that were etched into the craft, he believed that some sort of binary code was telepathically communicated to him. He had no idea what binary code was, and didn't understand the series of numbers that he was seeing in his head. The numbers kept him awake and plagued his thoughts, but he kept them to himself and chose not to tell anyone about them. Thirty years later, Penniston was involved in a series of ancient aliens, and the History Channel had hired programmer Nick Sisk. Penniston divulged the code to Sisk, and Sisk recognised it as binary code. He decoded it, and realised that it was a series of coordinates. The coordinates led to the following places. Caracol in Belize, Sedona in Arizona, Giza in Egypt, the Nazca Lines in Peru, Taishanku in China, the Temple of Apollo in Greece, and finally, the supposed location of High Brazil. So lovely listeners, let's stop our story there and let's get our thinking caps on and get into some very wild and exciting theories about the legendary island of High Brazil. So theory number one is that High Brazil existed at one point, but now it doesn't exist, quite simply. So the idea is that High Brazil existed and was a genuine island, but it has disappeared at some point, basically due to just the changing nature of our Earth. So obviously, over periods of thousands of years, there are geographical processes that happen that change the landscape of Earth. And in kind of, I think it was like the late 1800s, there was a bank of land discovered about 200 kilometers off the coast of Ireland called Porcupine Bank. And it's this really odd little raised bed of land off the coast of Ireland. So it's raised like underneath the sea, if that makes sense. So it's not above sea level, it's still underneath the sea. But it does suggest that there was an island there at some point. But I think it suggests that there was an island there like a really, really, really long time ago. And I'm not entirely sure if the Porcupine Bank would have been something that people even in the last, you know, thousand years would have known about. And, you know, the island being there before, I don't know if it is something people would have known about and being able to make stories about. So that's one of the theories that exists. And I'm not entirely sure that I fundamentally agree with it being the reason why the stories of High Brazil exist. I think it's really important at this point to reference the fact that High Brazil and Brazil actually aren't related. I know a lot of people seem to think that like Brazil, that people write that Brazil is like named after the island of High Brazil. I think it's because people confuse High Brazil, the B-R-A-S-I-L, and they pronounce it as High Brazil, which it is unlikely to have been. It's likely that the actual name High Brazil came from an Irish word for the High King of the World. 
So rather than it being anything related to Brazil at all or Brazil being anything related to it, it is a reference to the High King of the World in the Irish language. But my second interesting theory is that it is misidentification of Baffin Island, which was off the coast of Canada. So if you look at maps of High Brazil over the years, and those ancient maps do exist where the old, old cartographers in the 13 and 1400s made the maps of Ireland and they're, you know, they had the kind of crude shape of Ireland, but High Brazil was always on these maps. And it sort of looked to me like potentially somebody added it to the map and then everybody just added it to their maps afterwards, assuming that it was a discovered island. And there is maps where cartographers have done two islands of High Brazil, so one off the coast of Ireland and one off the coast of Greenland, suggesting that they kind of were wondering was High Brazil misidentified as an island that was further west than people previously thought that it would be. And I, I kind of like that theory until you get to the part where people claim to have seen High Brazil from the coast of Ireland. And look, I'm not very good with spatial awareness, okay? That's a, that's a little fact that you can have about me. Spatial awareness is not my jam, but I do know that you are not going to see an island off the coast of Greenland or Canada from the coast of Ireland. I don't care how good your eyesight is. And I don't care how big your telescope is. It's not going to happen. No way. I like the theory, but I'm not sold on it. And much known as I'd like to think that generations gone by of Irish people were somehow superheroes with supersonic sight. I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Which brings me swiftly to theory number three. And theory number three to me seems pretty likely... But we'll, we'll get into that. And that is the theory of Fata Morgana, which I did not know was a thing. And this is taken straight from Mysterious Universe's article about this. And it's one type of mirage that could certainly possibly account for the sightings of High Brazil is called a Fata Morgana, in which a layer of warm air sits upon a layer of cold air, which basically can act like a huge refracting lens that sends up a series of inverted images that can dramatically distort the appearance of a distant object such as a boat, a coastline or an island. These mirages can look incredibly realistic and since a Fata Morgana is constantly changing and can fade at a moment's notice, it is not hard to see how this sort of illusion could maybe account for some of the mysterious sightings of High Brazil. And actually, this is the one that I kind of agree with the most. And while in the earlier theory, I know I did point out my amazing scientific knowledge in asserting that you cannot see islands off the coast of Canada from Ireland, my science knowledge is actually not that good. So I don't really understand how this works, other than what I just read out to you. But I do know that big bodies of water can be home to optical illusions. We spoke about it in the Loch Ness monster episode. So, you know, I get, I get that it happens. I don't understand how it happens, but I get that it happens. Does it account for the people who claim to have landed on the island? Absolutely not. Do I think these people actually landed on the island? I don't think so. But my fourth and final theory would beg to differ. The fourth and final theory, which is, of course, aliens. The theory is aliens. It can be summed up in one word, aliens. There are people who believe, because mostly of the Rendlesham Forest connection, but also because of the ancient legends of people living on the island who had superior technology, who knew all the secrets of the universe, 
who had all these riches and could like were wizards people think that that means that it is potentially aliens now the Rendlesham Forest incident always interests me because of Peniston's account so he claimed that he touched the spaceship felt these glyphs as he refers to them as for want of a better word and this binary code was like telepathically sent into his brain and this binary code like traumatized him for years and he never told a soul about it I just find it mad that if you are telling people about this incident which he did but you would keep this telepathic code to yourself I don't know that you would unless of course he just started like dreaming about this code after the incident or it was like in his head and he didn't realize the things were connected and only afterwards thought oh maybe this came into my head when I touched the aircraft I don't know I just find it bizarre that you wouldn't connect the two and talk about that aspect of it. But anyway, apparently he kept it a secret for 30 years, this binary code, and then gave it to this guy, Nick Sisk, and then he decoded it and realized that it was coordinates to all of these places that are always seen to be, you know, alien adjacent places, let's say. So places like uh, the Pyramids of Giza, whatever, they're alien adjacent. And I, I have a big problem with Ancient Aliens as a TV show. I think that it, I know that it's for entertainment purposes. I know it's really technically not designed to be like educational or factual. But a lot of the information that they peddle on that, I just did, I just think it like dismisses the fact that, no, I'm sorry, ancient people did actually have these abilities to create these amazing things and there would have been highly intelligent engineers among ancient people who were able to create crazy things and I do I just believe fundamentally that that is how you know the pyramids were built uh the Nazca lines all of that stuff I think it's just crazy engineering that is that seems just completely impossible that just people managed to do because they were really intelligent and worked things out just because people were ancient people doesn't mean there weren't geniuses among them who could work out really complex stuff and I think ancient aliens has this habit of connecting these uh, ancient civilizations to obviously aliens right but I just thought it was really interesting that in these allegedly in this binary code the coordinates were for all these places including High Brazil. And it's led a lot of people to believe that maybe High Brazil is some sort of like base and maybe those other places are too. Who knows? Personally, I don't believe it. And not because I don't want to believe it. You know I don't like aliens. But look, if aliens have their home off the coast of Ireland, that's their business, not mine. But I just don't believe it. I personally think that the most likely reason for these sightings of this island is this Fata Morgana this optical illusion which would explain why people said things like the island is only visible once every seven years I'm sure what that actually means is the optical illusion only happened when the conditions were exactly right which happened quite rarely and therefore people would think they were seeing this island when actually what they were seeing was probably the coastline reflected back to them and the reason why I started this episode with the story of Oisin and Tirna is because I think that sometimes people don't realise that Irish people tell these stories like they actually happened. So we tell the stories of Oisin and Tirna Nog, you know, the Brown Bull of Cooley, the Fianna, the Red Branch Knights. We tell those stories like they really happened. And is it possible that these sailors, so sailors that weren't from Ireland, heard stories of Oisin and Tirna Nog, heard stories of this island that appeared and maybe thought, maybe that's the island. Maybe the island exists. Maybe there is this 
island where there's riches and immortality and a wizard lives on the island and he can grant you whatever you want. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's a conflation of old folklore and a scientific optical illusion. But listen, what do I know? I just tell stories. For all I know, that island could be an alien mothership. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, if you want to vote for Real Life Ghost Stories or any other podcast in the Listener's Choice Award for the British Podcast Awards, you just need to go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. It's really good advertising for small indie podcasts who don't have the money or the budget to spend money on loads of advertising. So it's 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 a pretty cool little thing to do. If you want to know anything about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can log on to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are desperate for some extra content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and all of the main episodes and mini episodes completely ad free. If you want to know the sources for where I got my information from for any of the stories on the main episodes, you just need to look in the episode notes. I always leave the sources linked in there. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.